0: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Today we're going to talk about that quarry, which happens to be trout, and the culture, which happens to be us as anglers and conservationists that are so interested in them. One kind of trout in particular uh, that's going to start our conversation is something that has been in the news a lot lately, and that is the greenback cutthroat trout. The greenback cutthroat. Uh, But before we get into that, I want to take a step back and talk about why we care about fish species why do we care about fish species? Why is so much made of the difference between rainbow trout and cutthroat trout of brown trout and brook trout? Why does it matter? If you are new to this, if you if you are just getting into fly fishing, or if you've been fly fishing for a long time, and you really don't see the the big deal, which there's people that are like this. And, and I, so I don't want you to feel like I'm talking down to anyone. I also don't want you to feel like I am talking about something that's ridiculous. I'd also want you to talk about think about the fact that I am talking about something that is is not worth having the conversation about because I've talked to people who have the opinion that uh, it really doesn't matter what kind of fish you're catching as long as you're catching a fish and that a lot of, of of time, energy and effort is wasted in talking about fish species. And I've also just talked to people who are a little bit ignorant and, I, and or naive would probably be a better word regarding the the differences of, of fish. And then of course, there's a wide swath of people in fly fishing who are incredibly pedantic about uh, species of trout. I find myself somewhere in the middle, um, but I probably err towards the side that really uh, appreciates the differences in fish species. So why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal as an angler because you need to know what you're catching because the regulations dictate what you can and can't catch, uh, what you can and can't keep. But beyond that, We have an opportunity as anglers, as people who use the outdoors, to be stewards of the natural environment that we are spending our time in, uh, particularly the resources of water and the fish therein. And so if we are taking care of that, it is going to last longer. And that's just a basic reality of using resources. But of course, we find ourselves here in the 21st century, after a couple of centuries, a few hundred years of mismanagement. Some of that was accidental. Some of that was just not understanding that uh, some of the uh, damming of rivers, the diversion of waterways, uh, and the utilization of, of water for agricultural and industrial use was going to be as damaging as it was. I don't put uh, nefarious intentions on the hearts of everyone who built a uh, a water wheel, or who built up a diversion dam, or built their factory next to water. Certainly, some did, well, knowing what, full well what they were getting into. But I'm not going to say that of everybody. But secondly, there is also overfishing and people caught way too many brook trout and the cat skills. Uh, people caught uh, way too many, um, uh, fish in, in the Rocky mountains and then decided, you know what, these fish are getting low. So let's supplement them with uh, more fish and those fish interbred with those first fish. And now you've lost a, a, a unique population. And so this has gotten us to the situation that we've really been in for about a hundred years. Um, you can really see, uh, from a, from a large scale movement uh, perspective, people caring about this in the in the late. First half of the 20th century. Certainly, there was people who were standing on the wall yelling that there was problems about this. Before that, you can even go back hundreds years before that. But uh, as as a nation and as a movement, when you see a lot of conservation organizations getting involved, particularly cold water conservation, we're talking to the the late mid part of the the, uh, the 20th century, and. A great example of that is the greenback cutthroat. So just this last week on uh, the news, uh, lots of different news sources, and I wrote about this on the on castingacross.com, a story came out about how uh, greenback cutthroat are successfully reproducing unaided by human help, from the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, I think is what the CPW is, um, that they're reproducing unaided in a new stream. Well, what does that mean? Well, a brief history of the greenback cutthroat, and I'm certainly not an expert, and you can hop online and read all sorts of stuff about the greenback cutthroat. But the the greenback cutthroat is a particular strain of the cutthroat trout. And so it is. there's only cutthroat trout. However, the populations because of isolation and because of limitations in their breeding, because of their uh, special habitats that they live in, they develop certain traits that establish them as uh, strains or subspecies of cutthroat trout. The same is true of brook trout, the same is true to a much lesser degree, but the same is true of brown trout, the same is true of rainbow trout. You see this uh, in in all sorts of other fish and all sorts of other animals. But of course, uh, trout, and, and that are, which are fish, are limited to the water. And because trout have a smaller margin for existence than maybe some other species, you see them uh, forming lots of different substrains and and, and, uh, and populations because they are not just limited to water, but they're limited to certain parts of water. So they are able to form these these strains and those subspecies over time. Now, the greenback cutthroat was understood as a unique subspecies all the way back in the middle of the middle to late 19th century. So I'm using very vague terms here because I don't have notes or anything like that in front of me. And when the 20th century rolls around, the greenback cutthroat was considered extinct. This was something where it was acknowledged to be in the South Platte, maybe in the Arkansas, but By the time you get to the the early part of the 20th century between uh, population degradation from, uh, again, the aforementioned issues of agriculture and overfishing, but then also from the introduction of more species, especially rainbow trout, which are close enough in relation, genetically speaking, to cutthroat trout where they're able to interbreed, create what is commonly known as a cutbow, the greenback cutthroat were considered to be extinct for all intents and purposes. One quick note, I didn't mention this when it comes to strains and subspecies, Something that is certainly not within my wheelhouse of expertise, but I've read a little bit about, is the, the um, ability to use genetic testing to determine uh, things at this strain or subspecies level. And the, the, the more advancements we make, the further we can dive down into the genetics of these fish and determine how closely two, two samples of, of any given uh, fish are related to one another. And this is where you're not having to use the eye test where say, well, this one's got a few more black spots than that one. This one might have a longer red slash than the other one. So I think these belong in this strain versus that strain, because as any of us who's fish in any body of water knows... Is that even within one body of water, one uh, two, any two fish may have a little bit different coloration, and so to be able to use genetic uh, technology that is is just you know rapidly getting better, we're able to know more today than we did yesterday, and certainly more than they did uh, when they were having to just look at things under a, a normal microscope. So coming back to uh, the, the middle part of the 20th century, a population was assumed to be discovered. And this is, I think in the 1950s in Rocky mountain national park. Uh, so you have the big Thompson river, which is a tributary of the South Platte. And I've talked about the big Thompson. I've talked about S's park. I've talked about Rocky mountain national park on podcasts before it's where I caught my very first, um, uh, Rocky mountain fish, my very first fish, probably West of the Mississippi, uh, to, to be exact. And, uh, I saw cutthroat trout and being a member of Trout Unlimited since I was a teenager, I knew all about all of these initiatives about uh, reestablishing cutthroat trout, uh, especially the greenback cutthroat in their native range. And so I got super pumped and I actually spent a number of trips uh, going up into the mountains and, and catching these fish that I assumed were greenback cutthroats. Well, what happens? You get to uh, the, the later part of the 20th century, and uh, actually um, the, the 21st century in the, like, I think 2012, 2010, something like that, they determined that these fish were not the actual greenback cutthroats. These were probably like Colorado cutthroat or a Rio Grande cutthroat, which are other subspecies. And again, the problem was, is that if you look at these two fish, they look virtually identical because you have variation within within each species. However, a population of greenback cutthroat that didn't just pass the eye test, didn't just pass the historical range test, but also passed genetic test, was found in a little tributary of the Arkansas River called Bear Creek. So to talk about that history again, we're talking about fish that existed and thrived, were considered extinct, were quote-unquote rediscovered, and then after further evaluation, that rediscovery went from a relatively wide uh, uh, range to a very, very small range. In fact, only one creek, this Bear Creek, a tributary of the Arkansas River. But from those fish, they have since been reintroduced to a couple other streams that would have been in the greenback cutthroats native range. And as of this week, news came out saying that these popular are now naturally reproducing. So that's kind of the, the the width and breadth of what's going on with the greenback cutthroat. Why does this matter? How does this what, how does this help your fishing or, or, or how does this impact your fishing? Well, I would say there's a, a few things. First of all, optimism. Have optimism. This is awesome. It's a great story. There's so much awful stuff going on in the world. You know, you get on regular Twitter and it's just a disaster. You get on to fly fishing Twitter and there's always something that somebody's whining about. And they're oftentimes, they're legitimate things to be kind of upset about. But this doom scrolling, this this just everything is awful. It's It's not true, first and foremost. Secondly, here's an example of something very good happening this is not saying that we're back to where things were pre-colonization or pre uh, impact for man, which I mean I don't even know where your baseline is for what we're trying to trying to return to, but you' are seeing positive steps being done with cooperation between a number of uh, bureaucratic and also volunteer groups to do good work. So I have some optimism. Look at this as a good story, some good news, right? Secondly, this ought to make you appreciate the diversity and the discovery that we can have as we look at fly fishing. So one of the things that I really enjoy is trying to find weird little populations of brook trout. I've talked about this before on the website where... I just really enjoy trying to find tiny streams as close to me as possible, or in close to places where I live and work and play, where I'm finding small populations of brook trout. I know plenty of places where I can go and catch consistent 14 and 16 uh, inch stocked fish, and they're, that's fine. And I'm not I'm not as good as that as I could be. I'm certainly not the best best at catching these fish, and that's fun, and I enjoy that. I'm never gonna put, turn my nose up at catching a 16 inch rainbow here on the East Coast. At the same time, there's something especially exciting to me about finding those four and six inch brook trout on a stream that doesn't make the regulations book, that it doesn't have special pull-offs for anglers. Those are the creeks that get me excited because there's an element of discovery. And then to look at that fish and the pictures I take of these little pretty fish in the water and compare them to fish that are caught maybe on the other side of a watershed or the next watershed over and see the differences and the similarities, especially if I can look back and some of the records and realize that there's a very good chance that these are not fish that have been stocked or fish that have been stocked over. So as messed up as the East coast is where where I am, you know, Northern Massachusetts and New Hampshire and Southern Maine, that there's still remnant populations. And for me, that's exciting. That might not make you excited, but it's like taking blue lining to the next level and that sense of exploration and then seeing the diversity. It's very cool now we don't have again that that real distinct strain and subspecies kind of thing here on the east coast especially within a relatively small area like new england for example but you get out west and you get to to some of these states that have a wide variety of strains of cutthroat trout or rainbow trout. And you begin to see that there is an, a great opportunity for exploration. There's a great opportunity for seeking out the diversity and coming to appreciate how every ecosystem, every landscape has a little bit of a different bearing on these strains of these fish, which again, genetically, essentially the same with a few different markers. So a good example of that is in the state of Utah with with uh, the the. Utah has something called the Cutthroat Slam, and other states have this as well. With Utah, you try to catch the, all of the native Cutthroat Trout, which there's the Bonneville, the Colorado, Yellowstone, Bear River, um, maybe one more, but I think that's it. And and I guess that's because a Grand Slam is four, right? Um, You know, Wyoming has a, a similar thing, Um, and and their their fish are going to be the Bear River, their Colorado River, Snake River, and the Yellowstone Cutthroat. And you know when you get in these websites and you get on books, they're going to find great examples of like what a, a perfect picture of an exemplary uh, uh, fish in this this strain or the subspecies looks like. But you look at enough pictures online, you realize there is a lot of crossover and. It's but still, it's exciting. It's it's really fun. Somebody that I had the privilege of of talking to countless times, and also uh, sitting under his teaching, was Dr. Robert Banky, who, as as most people acknowledge, is the, the 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 late Robert Banky was the foremost salmonid expert in in probably the world. And this was one of his passions was seeing the differences of these subspecies and these strains, and also the the fact that that we have preserved so many of them that they have been preserved that you can still go and see and catch and touch these fish that they're not something that has been relegated to a, a museum or something like that. Now there are plenty of fish that that are in that that category, the yellowfin cutthroat, for example. Uh, The elephant cutthroat uh, existed primarily in the Twin Lakes region of Colorado, but by the early 20th century, there had been rainbow trout that were introduced and they edged out, not only edged out the elephant and uh, effectively had made them extinct, but also they have interbred with the the greenback cutthroat in in that Twin Lakes region, which was also a uh, um, part of the uh, Arkansas River uh, drainage. And so this one introduction of one fish, you know, the fish that they're trying to conserve and and preserve on the western side of the Rocky Mountains, is doing all sorts of damage on the east side of the Rocky Mountains. But that just gives you an example of one species of trout that we're, we're we don't think we're getting back now. Could they clone that? Yeah, absolutely, they could do that. But it's not the same as finding a remnant species high up on a mountainside. Now. Does this mean that we go to Bear Creek and this uh, other new creek that they have uh, discovered that these fish are spawning in and, and go and try to catch them all so we can get pictures of them? Uh, it depends. It really does depend. I do not feel like we need to be dogmatic about about accessing and utilizing these resources because we uh, sportsmen uh, and women are honestly going to be the greatest advocates for the preservation of these fish fish that might have a subspecies or strain status where they might not as easily as a fish that is a completely unique species make it onto some sort of conservation list so we're we are going to to you know see the benefits and see the unique nature of these strains and so by becoming familiar with these fish and having a relationship with with their their water bodies and the areas around them we're going to be their best advocates and sometimes that means you know if you love something you know set it free just let it go do its thing and know that it's there sometimes it means utilizing that resource and being there and just being responsible and 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 demonstrating that there is more going on here than some sort of arbitrary designation about a substrain of a fish that this is something that is a draw that that is something that people value and they're willing to spend time energy effort and resources in making sure that it stays uh stays a thing and And then that's those fish propagate and, and are able to last. I mean, there's plenty of, of streams here where I've caught one brook trout in it. And I said, you know what, based on the size of this fish and the size of this stream, I am content to say that I have done what I wanted to do and and here, and I'm going to let it be. And that doesn't make me virtuous or super righteous. It's just the way that I look at some of these streams where I'm catching a, you know, a four inch trout and I'm thinking, how many other 4-inch trout are there here? I think I'm probably content to just see this one and know that they live there. And the exploration and the hunt was as fun as, well, you know, not a whole lot of fun to catch the 4-inch fish from a fight standpoint. It's more of the getting there and knowing it's there that, uh, that I appreciate. So wherever you live, this is something that you can engage in. Uh, I wrote an article about the Sunapee trout uh, a few months ago, and I, I think I called it The Trout You'll Never Catch. And it's because the last remaining known population of these fish is in a water body that is uh, barred from people accessing it. So we know those fish are there, but we can't touch them. I mean, certainly the the main, uh, you know, wardens can go touch them and things like that. And we know that they're in there, but it's a little bit different. And so, it, it's one of those things too, where how many, how much resources, and how much manpower, and how many, how much federal funding, or state funding, do we want to spend on reintroducing a fish into into a water body? That's where you see something like what's happening in Colorado is so special. It's just it was very organic, it was very natural, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of steam that was able to to make this happen. But these are things that are fun to pay attention to. Again, it's fun to have the optimism to, to know that we can do these things, but it's also fun to know the history. The history is so that we don't repeat it and get into the same mistakes, but also to understand that there's something special about the fish that you catch if you live on the East Coast in Maine. That's different than the fish that you catch in Georgia. Um, you know, I really treasure some of these South Carolina brook trout that I caught. Um, and it doesn't mean that the, uh, the Spring Creek, Pennsylvania brook trout I caught were any less special. They're just very different from one another, and they're the same fish, but they're different fish, very different lives, very different um, uh, histories, and understanding that is is a great way to really appreciate catching a fish at a deeper level. So if you're all about just catching trout, then I can appreciate that, but know that there's more there. Um, If you are pedantic about it, then try to share in an articulate and in a compassionate and gracious way why there is more to catching fish than just catching fish uh, to your friends and to those you encounter on the stream. And it's not just about abiding by the regulations. It's about understanding the deeper, richer experience that comes from understanding our resources. This week's articles, Monday. Was Trout and Feather September twenty two, and I write about building your analog angling library. So every month or so, I contribute to Tim Camisa's website Trout and Feather with an article, and I share some of his resources on my website. And this month, I talked about building up your angling library. Tim has a relatively new book out. I think it came out in actually late twenty one, and it's a fly tying book. It's a great book. I would absolutely recommend it if you are a new fly tire or if you are getting somebody into fly tying there's some recipes that anybody could benefit from but the the photography and the technique is something that we could even put in the hands of a beginner so i absolutely recommend tim's book i have a rec- another recommendation at the end of the podcast but i wanted to throw that in there but you're read about uh, building a library something i've talked about quite a bit on casting across but this is a nice distilled article over at Tr- trout and feather and then wednesday's article is called greenbacks are back uh, trout in the news and guess what i talked about talked about exactly what i just talked about for the last 21 minutes But uh, here I included some links to some non-fly fishing articles. So we've been hearing about greenback cutthroat trout for decades and decades in fly fishing media. Here you have local uh, TV affiliates and uh, Colorado Public Radio talking about greenback cutthroat. And for me, it's always interesting to hear what uh, kind of mainstream media has to say about fly fishing and the kind of things that us fly fishers pay attention to. So check out that article and click on some of those links. This week's recommendation, I have a lot to say about this, but I'm going to keep it short get yourself a Garmin watch. Uh, I got one for my birthday and it is not the lowest model because I don't want a lot of bells and whistles, Uh, but it is like the next one up. I think it's called the Forerunner 245. So it's still a pretty fancy watch in the grand scheme of things. But I mean, the the higher end models go up to like 900 bucks. Definitely didn't want to wear that on my wrist, but this one is a lot of fun for a lot of reasons. I run, I don't talk about that much, but I run a lot. And so this is a way for me to add some empirical data to just getting out and and exercising. And it doesn't take up a lot of time. It's not very complicated, but it helps me keep track of things, make sure that I'm being efficient in the way that I, I, I exercise. But there's also a way to track how much trail time you you spend. There's a way to track the, just for like nerd things, like know how how long you've walked on the stream, the altitude that you've you've gained, uh, your stride length, things like that. That might have zero interest to you, or it might be something that like me, you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting to know. But then also there's a map function, um, which for me is great if you are kind of bushwhacking a little bit. And you have zero cell phone service to be able to get a little bit of GPS help from something on your wrist is very, very cool. Um, and also bare minimum, it, you can tell you how long you've walked. And so if you, you know how much time you have to get back, which for me, fishing up in some of the national forests around, around here, uh, there's not a lot of cell phone service coverage. So it is kind of a fun thing to have. Um, but it's also can be a very helpful thing. Um, to duck season and it gives me my sunrise. So all I got to do is subtract half an hour and I know when I can shoot legally. Um, I don't really care about steps or heart rate or anything like that, but it also tells me the temperature. It's just a fun little tool that uh, you can use for as serious of purposes or as casual purposes as you want. So I will put a link to the Garmin Forerunner 245. I think mine is the music, although I don't plan on listening to music on my watch anytime soon. But I'll put a link to that on the show notes for this podcast page on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish.